belong, become, believe. You're listening to Grace Church of Northwest Arkansas podcast. The message for April 10th, 2022 is called, What's Covenant Got to Do With It? The speaker is John Ray and the location is Clap Auditorium, Mount Sequoia in Fayetteville, Arkansas. Again, it's great to see everybody here this morning. Uh, For those listening on the podcast, watching on the live stream, my name is John Ray. This is Grace Church of Northwest Arkansas. When the moment came that I finally snapped, um, I snapped a hundred percent. The pressure had mounted for so long, the weight of caring for a growing family with overtaxed resources. It was like trying to find water in a dried up creek. And it was during this relentless summer heat that was spent when our family had a minivan where the air conditioner was broken and the windows were stuck up. We were living in a mobile home with no AC as well. Our plans had been frustrating. The pressure was mounting, and we were supposed to be doing God's work in ministry at this time, yet feeling abandoned by God at every turn. I felt not only abandoned, but misunderstood, incompetent, left hung out to dry. It was all swirling around in my brain until finally driving down this dusty road, sweating inside of this van, not finding any answers to my prayers or how I was going to work things out. I snapped. I slammed the van into park. I got out and I let God have it. Now, this is a Sunday morning church service. So I'm not going to repeat exactly what I said in full, but just to let you know, I spent many years tending bar so I can give the full complement of things that I said. But I, I directed all of this anger, all of this anxiety, all of this pressure directly towards God. I screamed, I cried, I made hand gestures, I cussed. I laid out the case of why God was totally incompetent, why he had failed me, and God was not worth to be trusted at all. When that bile was finally exhausted, I sat back and waited for the inevitable lightning bolt to strike, right? Because one does just doesn't get away with talking to God like that. And while I may not have expected a literal lightning bolt, I did honestly expect the reaction of condemnation, of shame, of punishment, of demonstrable evidence that I had gone, crossed the line, crossed a bridge too far, that it was done, that God was done with me. 
in response, all I got was grace. What I was not expecting. In response, and it was not an audible voice that I heard, but, but I got the full sense that God was saying, finally, finally, now we can deal with these things. Now we can do these things. There was no shame. There was no guilt. There was no disappointment in the sense that I, of the response that I got. All I got was overwhelming love. All I got was overwhelming grace. And if I had broken before, there was a whole nother level of brokenness that took place then with that. Y'all, we are so predisposed to anticipate punishment from God. All of us who have grown up in any kind of religious structure, and this is not limited to Christianity, but it seems especially prevalent within fundamentalist, kind of the modern Christianity that we swim in in, in our cultural context right now. That the underlying presupposition is that what we should primarily expect from God is condemnation and punishment. That's the underlying basis of our reality. And when that, and, and that guides everything, that guides our whole imagination, that guides our religious services, that guides our faith, that, that guides our family, how we, how we interact in our families, how we interact in our culture, all of these things, it, it spreads out from there. And on this day, Palm Sunday, the day that we traditionally associate with the triumphal entry of Jesus as some kind of messianic figure, which even though if you've ever heard me preach on Palm Sunday, I believe that it was ultimately a subversive act. What I want to look at this morning is what follows Palm Sunday in what is known as the Last Supper. These two are usually linked, even though they take place different days, they're usually linked together. And I think what we're going to find in this text is that Jesus' presence enters in a whole new covenant or way of understanding God's posture to us. And this is made evident in this Last Supper. And not only that, but that when we see Jesus, we see God. And we see God's posture towards us. That in the Last Supper, we see the clearest expression, the clearest demonstration of covenant that we have. So let's look at the text. We're looking at Mark. Uh, we're studying Mark right now. We've jumped ahead. We're looking at Mark 14. So starting in verse 12. <clears throat> now, on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, when the Passover lamb is sacrificed, Jesus' disciples said to him, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? He sent two disciples and told them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, tell the owner of the house. The teacher says, Where is the guest room? Or the, my teacher says, Where is my guest room that I may eat Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make pre preparations for us there. 
So the disciples left, went in the city, found these things just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. Then, when it was evening, he came to the house with the twelve. While they were at the table eating, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, one of you eating with me will betray me. And they were distressed. And one by one they said to him, surely not I. He said to them, it is one of the twelve who dips his hand in the bowl, with me in the bowl. For the Son of Man will go as it is written about him. But woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would be better for him if he had never been born. While they were eating, he took the bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it, gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And after taking the cup and giving thanks, he gave it to them, they drank from it. He said, This is my blood, the blood of the covenant, that is poured out for many. I tell you the truth, I will no longer drink the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now it's interesting to note that this text is immediately preceded by the anointing, the, the meal the night before is the anointing of Jesus by the woman of disrepute. We don't know exactly who that is, but it was a woman who, who the religious people took offense at being near Jesus, and she anoints him. It's interesting to see how he talks about that anointing instead of the praises and the hosannas of the people. And that's what I want us to see. One of the things I want us to see on this Palm Sunday is the contrast of Jesus' response. While I think most of us would prefer the chanting crowds, like that would be a, some pretty big ego stroke, right? Come into, the, come into the town and people chanting your name and laying down their coats and making the way. Like, like that would feel pretty good. Apparently that doesn't phase Jesus at all. He, he makes no other mention of it. And yet, when this, this woman comes in and she breaks this alabaster jar and she anoints him, he says, she's the one who this is going to be remembered. Like, like he pays attention to that. He receives that. And that's a, that's a really important contrast I think we understand. And when we get to this part, the triumphal entry is passed. It seems to have no, almost no significance in changing the outcome where Jesus was headed. And in this scene, we have no crowds, no Pharisees to debate, no sick or the possessed to be healed. It's just Jesus and his disciples and their host. It's very intimate. It's almost mundane, but it's full of meaning. In fact, I believe that we are to notice that Jesus is not crowned on the dias of political power, but he is instead anointed by this outcast woman and then shares this meal. And he says this strange thing. And this is where we want to get. We have to kind of give the background for that because he talks about covenant. Now, covenant is a kind of a Christianese word. If you've grown up in the church, you've heard covenant. There's Covenant's been used in all kinds of things to describe marriage and just this contrast to contract and all these different things. But essentially, a covenant is a promise that is made by one party to another and as opposed to a contract where if I make a contract with you, I say I'm going to do this, you say you're going to do this back. If either one of us breaks that, the, the, the contract breaks, right? Covenant isn't like that. Covenant is usually, almost always initiated by God, and he says, I'm going to do, or God says, I'm going to do this thing. I would like, I invite you to do this in response, but even if you don't do that, I'm still going to do this. So it's, it's opposed to a contract. 
A contract is based on mutual um, allegiance or adherence to the contract. Uh, covenant just says, this is what I'm going to do. I, I invite you to respond this way, but even if you don't, I'm still going to fulfill my side with this. So what is this new covenant? We have all kinds of covenants, and I, in the resources, uh, there's a link that talks about all the, the, the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, all these different covenants. What is this covenant that Jesus is talking about? Well, in one sense, it's a fulfillment of all those previous con covenants, but in another sense, it's something very new. And it deals specifically with this thing of what we call atonement. I'm sorry if this gets a little dense, but we have to understand it, is that it deals with God's response to us. This covenant deals with that thing that predisposes us to expect punishment. Usually we use the word sin for this, but it goes way beyond that. Sin is a Again, it's a churchy word. It's a word that sometimes we misunderstand. And kind of the way that I think of it is more the brokenness of the world. It's this brokenness. Because it's not, often we think of sin as something that we volitionally do. But listen, there are all kinds, there's all kinds of brokenness in this world that we can't ascribe a motive or a meaning or, or something to. It's just there. There's just brokenness in this world. It happens. We participate in it. And it also happens to us. This covenant that Jesus is talking about is, what are we going to do about that? We, we usually call this atonement theories, and, and there's all kinds of atonement theories out there. And usually, this is what it boils down to, is what, how we think God is dealing with the brokenness affects how we deal with brokenness. Are you with me? I know, I'm, I know, I know it's, it's a little bit dense, but how we think that God deals with the brokenness in the world dictates our imagination and our actions of how we deal with brokenness. Everything from rearing our children to engaging in our marriage relationships, our friend relationships, our political relationships in the world, that's when we, we kind of take our cues from our idea of how God is dealing with this brokenness, and that's how we do it. Let's look at how God deals with brokenness. That's what he's doing at this table. When we get come every Sunday to this table, and that's why it's so important, this is the center of the worship. My words right now are not the center of this worship time. Even the songs we see, they're to prepare us all for this. Because this table is the symbol of how God responds to the brokenness, the problems in the world. So let's look at what's happening here. We have to start with what is, the, what is this thing that Jesus has come to do? It's, it's summarized. Jesus' life is summarized. He says, I come to give you life and give it more abundantly. That right there ought to do something to our imminent expectation of punishment. We're expecting punishment, and Jesus is saying, no, life. I'm, I'm coming to bring life. I'm coming to bring life more abundantly. Right? But we're so ingrained. It's so deep inside of us, this expectation that we're not enough. 
That if God really knew who I was and what I thought, that I would be abandoned, that I would be punished, that I would be shamed. That if he only knew what I did, or if he only knew what was done to me that was so horrific, so dirty, so shaming, God could never do that thing. Even when we hear the words, I've come to bring you life and bring it more abundantly, we still expect the punishment. And then we see this meal. We see this meal and God is saying one more time, y'all. It's life. And we start to see that the covenant is not about taking life as was represented in the Old Testament, but it is giving life. We start to see that this wine poured out, that this this symbolic blood, that he's actually changing that. And he's saying, where draining blood takes life out, I'm filling you up with it. When we take this little tiny cup as a remembrance, what we're actually doing is remembering that Jesus is not draining us of life. Jesus is pouring life into us. In the same way, when we take that little tiny cracker, which is just silly, right? It is a silly thing that we do, but it is a sign of something cosmically significant. That there is that everyone is welcome at the table, that, that Jesus is freely giving God's self to us in that. And and we have to understand also the setting of it, right? The the crowds clamored for a king on Palm Sunday. They expected him to take over, to go to the palace. And Jesus is in this isolated room somewhere with the least powerful people you can imagine. These are not the politicians, the military leaders. These are not the social influencers. These are not the celebrities. Just. I know, I know, I know. We we think about Jesus already in this powerful position as some kind of rock star or something that's going through. He is with the most common, mundane people you could imagine sharing this, giving this to you. That is symbolic of us. We are seeing in this that God's love transcends all transgressions, ours that we've done and those that have been done to us. God is the ultimate recycler, if you will. God literally takes the mess of the world, absorbs it, and recycles out wholeness. He takes what is broken into God's self and gives us back wholeness. God takes death, and in and of himself, he absorbs that, and he recycles it, and he gives us life. That's what's happening at this table, what we see. The radical inclusiveness of Jesus in this welcoming table is most acutely evidenced in the inclusion of Judas at the table. Now, it's easy to see. We know that Judas is the one that betrayed him, physically betrayed him, selling him out. 
30 pieces of silver. We know that. Think about the humility that it takes. Think about the humility that it takes for Jesus to serve. The one that he already knows is betrayed. But, 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 Judas is not the only betrayer at the table. There are 11 others. Everybody betrayed Jesus. There was no man at the cross. The only faithful ones we can point to were the women who stayed. But the ones that we call the 12, the 12 disciples, 12 apostles, they all fled. Every one of them. That's why I think we saw this conundrum when when he says, it is one who is dipped his bread in, Jesus literally goes around and every one of them dips the bread in the bowl. They, they all, they all left, they all scattered. And yet, and yet he still serves them. So any punishment, any any shame, any retribution that they could expect, he's preemptively subverted. He already said, I know what you're going to do, and I still love you. So, and this is where it gets really mind-blowing, is that it's not just for the brokenness that has already been done. It's not just for the brokenness that's already been done to us and through us. It's for what we're going to do. There is no expectation of performance that hinges on this. It is not contractual. It is not, now that I have done this for you, now, don't do it again. Now. Look, don't do it again, okay? <laughs> it's not, it, again, we, it's not a free pass, but Jesus is saying, look, I get it. You're going to do it again. And I'm still going to serve you. I'm still offering this to you. So, Jesus doesn't deny the consequences. He talks about that. But what he does is he accepts them and the fact that he's going to cover that. This is not a denial of the consequences of sin. This is an acceptance of those consequences by Jesus himself, by God, God's self. So what keeps us from seeing this? Like when we really understand this and you look at it, you go, this is really good news. This is profoundly affecting. This will change the world. Yet, we somehow miss the point. Somehow we go, yay, great, but let's keep doing this, this way. Part of that is just history and culture, y'all. We, none, of us, none of us exist in a vacuum. All of us are born into an already moving thing with its history and culture and the highways and the roads. It's like, it's like, you know, you're born and you want to get somewhere, you travel the road that's already there, right? Like you don't just go make your own road. Like you just go. You know, all of us are born into that. Another reason is we we all have an overly self-centered reading of the text. We center ourselves, our problems, our imagination of the text, and we miss the bigger implications of it. But honestly, honestly, I think the biggest thing is just this hyper-developed sense 
of self-condemnation and its flip side, self-exoneration, that all of us carry. Is we're just, it's like we're we're spring-loaded to expect punishment, to expect condemnation. And as one way of subverting that within ourselves, we go to self-exoneration. Like we we almost preemptively go all this way and figure out all this way is why, hey, I'm not culpable. It's everybody else's fault. I'm fine. Neither one of them deals with the real problem. And neither one of them makes space for this radical covenant of Jesus to come in. And it's also this fear of the unknown, isn't it? A fear of personal suffering that often leads us to these acts of self-preservation. We don't know what that means. Like, like it's, an, it's a fascinating psychological study that, that many people see is that people will stay in an abusive relationship. They will stay in a negative space because they understand it. Even though it's bad, they know what to expect. And leaving that negative relationship or that negative um, place where they are would mean stepping into the unknown. And the unknown is actually scarier than the abuse where they are. And so they stay in those things. And I think we do that. Like we're like, I, I understand, I understand contract. I understand I mess up, I get punished. I get that. I can wrap my brain around it. But we don't have, in, in the fear of this unknown place where God could actually be what God says God is, giving us life, wholeness, unmerited, unearned, and unending forgiveness is so unknown, it, it's too scary to step into. But I got to tell you all, it's in these times of this excessive cultural vitriol, the antagonism, the entrenchment, the estrangement of relationship, that it takes a community seeped in this imagination if we are going to find a way through that, if we are going to understand ourselves. We're not going to answer the problems and the things we're facing with the old answers with that. And this is where it gets down to a personal note as well, is... I, we talk a lot about this a lot at, at Grace, I'm not the pastor here. I am a pastor, but I'm not the pastor in the traditional sense of a church model. I'm not the guy making all the decisions, and doing all this stuff. Like, we have, we have a team here. We don't have time to go into it all. But I, this is, this is uh, instead of telling you what I don't do, this is what I'm going to tell you what I am here for. This is why John Ray is up here on a Sunday morning. This is why John Ray is part of this church. This is why John Ray is leads the teaching team. Is because all I have to offer you are my scars. I do not have a three-step plan how to be a perfect Christian how to fix all the problems in your life. I'm not, I'm not a counselor in the sense that, hey, if you have a problem, just come to me and I'm going to give you some therapeutic things to work on and, and your life's going to be better. I, I don't have any of that. 
I have scars. I have mistakes. I got a whole lot of mistakes to share with you. I have a whole lot of pain. I have a whole lot of shortcomings. And ultimately what I have to offer you is, is that is to be vulnerable. Is just to say, look, this is this is what I'm learning. These are the mistakes that I've made. Here, let me show you my scars where I've messed up. And as best as I can, I will walk with you through this. And we will walk together and we will learn from one another. Because that's what I see Jesus doing. He's not coming to, to set things right and create, you know, give you this plan for order. No, he's, he's coming and saying, I'm going to share a meal with you. And now, this is where we stop the analogy because I'm not Jesus, okay? I'm, I'm on the other side. Jesus is over here, right? But Jesus says, I'm going to come share a meal with all of you. I'm going to offer you myself. I'm going to make myself vulnerable to you. And all of you are going to leave me. All of you are going to abandon me. I've done that. I've left Jesus. I've abandoned Jesus. I've walked away from Jesus. I've turned my back on Jesus more times than I can remember. And yet there is something about this invitation of Jesus that always turns me back around. With that. That's what I have. And that's ultimately all we have to offer one another. Is your gifts are great. Yeah, you can you can sing or you can do computer or you can teach or you can counsel or you can do that's great, but really what we need is each other. We need the vulnerability. We need the this space to unlearn our penchant for self-condemnation and self-exoneration. And understand that this new covenant reorders the way that we relate to each other as well as how we relate to God with that. This is one of the most provocative, earth-shattering questions I can think to ask. And what I think it is, is asking, is it not that the new covenant that Jesus gives us is the giving up of retribution? Specifically, the giving up of violent retribution. The new covenant that Jesus is pouring out by offering himself to the people that are going to betray him and not striking them dead, not responding with exclusion, not coming down and condemning them, not when Peter comes back and he says, sorry, Peter, you crossed the line, no more. No, instead, he says, welcome, invite, come into the kingdom. I'm giving you life. Take the cup, take the bread. Yes, I know what you've done. I know what's been done to you. I know what you're going to do. Welcome. Welcome. There's, there's just nothing more disorienting to our lives that are so steeped in violence and contract and performance, shame and guilt than that. I don't know of anything more radically different than the way we live without God. Or even sometimes with our this image of God. Than that. Well, I've talked a lot today.
here's, I'm ask the worship team to come up. But I want us to take a minute and reflect on this. What I am learning, both experientially and through my study of the, of the, of the text, and not just the study of the Bible, the study of other religions, the study of philosophies, that's what I do. It's weird, I know. But, but primarily through my experience, in which I find resonates and is given language to in the Bible, in the Christian faith, is the really challenging idea that God loves me. Period. That God likes me. That God accepts me. That any, listen carefully here, any and everything that you think disqualifies you from that relationship has been taken care of. There is nothing that you have done or have been done to you or that you will do that will have God rescind that invitation. There is only one thing that will keep you from experiencing it. And that is saying yes. That is saying yes to God. That is saying yes to Jesus. That's the only thing. There's no sin. There's no brokenness. There's no obstacle. There's no price to be paid. There's no ransom. That's all been done. It's all been done. Every single one of those things, every way you can think about it, it has been done. The only single thing that prevents us, any of us, all of us, from experiencing that is yes. It's the yes. We say yes, Jesus, okay. If you have not done that, and, and listen, this is a constant yes, okay? It's, it's yes once and it's yes always, and it's yes we have to say every day. And it's yes we say on these days. This is the yes. This is a sign of it. You come up here, you take this, it's a yes. It's okay, Jesus, yes. Who's going to betray me? The one who comes to the table. And Jesus says, come. So come. Today. Every day. Say yes. Say yes. There's nothing. That's it. That's the only thing you got to do. Say yes. So. Talked a lot today. So, anyway. Thanks for being here. I love you all. And uh, let's say yes together. Thank you for listening to Grace Church of Northwest Arkansas podcast. You can find more about us online at gracechurchmwa.org. Grace and peace.